Welcome to Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth, where we explore pathways that set yourself free with heart-centered thought leaders who are curious and conscious. And today we're in studio with Kim Witzik. And Kim is um, many things, but she is an accidental advocate who has found passion and purpose and work that she has uh, fallen into. And she's here to share that with us. But she's not only that, she is um, a brilliant person in advertising and marketing and communications. She is a yogi. She is um, a heart-centered full human that brings so much light and brightness to the world. And I am really grateful that she is on the show with us today. Hi. Well, thanks for having me. Welcome, Kim. Yeah. So, Kim, tell us um, a little bit about yourself. Like when you um, meet new listeners and and people who are new to your story and, and new to all the great work you've been doing in the world um, from basically just being on the planet. Tell us a little bit about kind of who you are and and how you um, have come to the work, some of the work you do. Sure. Um, well, I like to call myself the accidental advocate. And the reason I call myself the accidental advocate, because sometimes life chooses for you your greatest purposes. I would never have chosen the advocacy work that I have now spent almost two decades working on, but it was a personal experience. And it all started on August 6, 2003, which is coming up on 20 years in August. I received, I know it's crazy. Uh, I received a call from my dad. I was out of town on work and my dad called to tell me that my husband uh, was found was dead. He was found hanging from the rafters of our garage, um, dead at age 37. In this one phone call, and I always say that we're one phone call away from life forever changing, and that was definitely the point where the my life uh, had the life I had known before Woody. You know, there's BCAD. Yes. You know, um, this is kind of my. Uh, this is the marker in my life that forever changed um, the direction. And I always say the track of the railroad track, I was jumped it. The tracks I was on of life changed. And, and really um, my husband was found hanging and, and Woody wasn't depressed. He had no history of depression. He had no mental health issues. He had just started his dream job with a startup company and was having trouble sleeping. And I always say, having trouble sleeping middle of night waking up is not a mental illness no but you know he um was a guy and i call him humpty dumpty because he loved you know he was an athlete and every time he got hurt he would go you know the doctors put him back together you know they (laughs) like if he got um somebody i remember playing basketball somebody um, bit his head so he ended up with stitches (laughs) you know he's broken legs broken arms you know there is a purpose for medicine right yeah but Woody went um, went and saw his doctor, and after a short visit, he left with a three-week sample pack of Zoloft, which is an antidepressant given to him for insomnia, and was told that it would take the edge off and help him sleep. I was out of the country on a three-week 
advertising shoot in New Zealand. So I wasn't even there when Woody got the prescription, well, samples initially. And um, I'll never forget. So I didn't see what was happening the first three weeks that Mm. where the sample pack already automatically doubled the dose after week one. Right. So that that's a normal like sample. Yes. Like when doctors give you Zoloft, it's a normal progression. Exactly. It doesn't necessarily take in someone's constitution or weight or age or correct. Yep. That's exactly right. It was a sample pack and that's a pretty standard where it starts and they'll say it's a pretty low dose and it automatically doubled for second the second week. And it's just the normal drug company samples. So obviously, you know, doctors take it out of their sample closet, here you go, go home, etc. So So Woody who, you know, emergency room medicine is phenomenal, like Woody experienced, it keeps you going. You have those, you know, athletic injuries and puts you back together and gets you back into what you love. And here he goes to his doctor and he's like, I'm having trouble sleeping. I've just started my dream job. Um, I can't be sleep deprived. And because he has all this trust in his previous experience, he didn't think to uh, find out and find out yeah, how, he, how that all worked, right? No, and I think at the time, you know, he just trusted um, the doctor. And really, if they say, you know, take this – you know, really, most people do that. They, yeah. they trust their doctors, and that's why, you know, there's a lot of blind trust, I say, blind faith in the yeah. system. But, you know, I look back, and, you know, I like I said, I was out of the country the first three weeks, so I mm-hmm. didn't see what was happening to him. But I will never forget what I saw when I came um, um, came back. I was excited to see Woody. Woody walked in the back door. He was completely drenched in um, – he was in a blue dress shirt. And sweat through it, dropped his bag at the back door, walked in and fell to the um, kitchen floor and put his hand around his head like a vice. And he's like, you got to help me, Kim. I don't know what's happening to me. It's like I'm outside my body looking in. I'm losing my mind to help me. And he's bawling. And I remember like looking at him. I have never seen that. You know, I've been together with him for 13 years and married almost 10. I've never seen that behavior. And... And he was bawling, and I remember we calmed him down. We went into the basement, and we were doing breathing, praying, you know. Mm. And eventually he called his doctor and told him what had happened. And the doctor said, you got to give it four to six weeks to kick in. Mm. And so... So the doctor didn't even think, like, maybe we need to reduce this trajectory of the sample pack? No, you know, you got to remember this is 2003. There right. were no warnings. And they just, you know, the doctors, because um, that's what the, the companies, the drug companies were telling people that it needed four to six weeks to kick in. That's a pretty mm-hmm. normal, you know, that was the messaging that was mm-hmm. out there right back then. And so Woody, you know, they said give him four to six weeks. And I look back and every night the next week he came home and he'd be thinking, he would say, what do you think about acupuncture? I'm going to beat this feeling in my head. Mm. What do you think about hypnosis? I'm going to beat this feeling in my head. Mm. Everything was beat this feeling in his head mm-hmm. of feeling outside his body looking in. Mm. You know, and so that was where he was. And, you know, four to six weeks, Woody lasted another week. Um, and mm. it was on the drug a total of five weeks. Ugh. 
And I was actually out of town because it was my busy time uh, in advertising. We were in the middle of productions. And this is not – the traveling between us was not a, something unusual because we both have done that. We have both traveled a lot for our businesses and have done it our entire marriage. So mm-hmm. like that was just normal being gone. Sure. Uh, so – I remember I hadn't heard from Wood on August 6th. So I called my dad. And, you know, he's the one that obviously found him. And later that night, um, while I was out of town in Detroit, I got a call from the coroner after the coroner had arrived to our house. And she wanted to know if Woody was taking um, any medication. Hmm. I just got chills. Yeah. And, and, and I said – oh, it's upstairs, you know, I thought it was upstairs in our um, medicine cabinet. And she goes, oh, no, there's a bottle of Zoloft sitting here on the kitchen counter under a light. Mm. And um, and I said, oh, yeah, that's it. Again, not linking anything to the medication, right? Yeah. But she said, we're going to take it with us. It might have something to do with his death. That was clue number one. Mm. Also, the same day that Woody um, was found, hanging the front page of our newspaper, had an article that said the UK finds link between antidepressants and suicide in teens. Mm. And basically those two things on the exact night Woody was found. And Woody and I, like I said, we've traveled a lot. There was no note. Woody did not leave a note. Mm. And he, in some ways, this was his note. Right. right. I mean, the, the biggest, signs. The signs were the note. And, you know... Obviously, I'm trying to – my life had just fallen apart, but my brother-in-law that night went home after because he came, he was at my house with my, my parents and went home and Googled Zoloft and suicide and had no idea the information that came up that the FDA was looking at uh, the link between the emergence of – violence and suicide with Prozac in 1991. Wow. This is now 14 years later, 2003. And so literally, uh, you know, that was kind of the start. But, you know, at the time, Woody and I never questioned the drug. We never, why would we? It was given to him by his doctor. It was advertised and sold as safe and effective. And it was FDA approved. And so, you know, that obviously, you know, when we looked and, and I think with any kind of suicide or sudden death, there becomes this like need to investigate mm-hmm. and, and especially like, why would Woody, a guy who loved life, we had just booked our 10 year anniversary mm-hmm. trip to Thailand. We we're talking about having kids. We had just booked our trip mm. to go to Hawaii with his parents. Uh, he was out during this whole time because he was uh, a big runner that he was super anal, so he always kept track of um, <laughs> yeah. his running and how many miles he was running. Mm-hmm. So because, you know, apparently you can't have too many miles on your shoes. No, you can't. Um, I For still runners. Wear, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I okay. wear the same shoes because I'm not as serious. Of a yeah, runner, and I but. was going to say, and I was like, you're doing what? It seems like <laughs> a waste. But anyways, I was actually glad that he had that because that kind of showed you who he was and mm-hmm. where he was that he was still running during this whole time, right? Yeah, so like his habits hadn't changed. It was just the sleep was interrupted. Yeah, the sleep was interrupted. But we never quite, you know, you look back and uh, Woody went from not being able to sleep to this feeling of head outside the body right. and dead in five weeks. And right. so, you know, we started to look into 
was it the drug, especially because that corner gave us the biggest uh, start. Yeah. yeah, the start to the investigation, which was, was he on any medication? And again, that was the only medication he was taking. And it really started, you know, going in and going deep into what was known and known to a lot of other people, but but us and his doctor. Well, I think you're also um, touching upon how often we give our authority to other people mm-hmm. um, who, you know, we've been taught to give our authority to doctors or to teachers or coaches or insert someone who's in a higher level um, position. And um, you're really, the, I mean, Woody's story and, and you and Woody's story is really inviting people to be more curious and to do the invest- investigation to be curious, to even have the the courage to ask the questions you, your brother-in-law, your parents, that coroner started to ask is quite profound. I mean, it's really amazing that you could step into that um, in the middle of such grief. I, you, and shock, probably. I, yeah, I think shock. I think the grief. But intuitively, in the deepest part of me, I knew that something didn't make sense, even if I didn't even know it right away. Mm-hmm. So you're going down a path. And mm-hmm. once you started going down that path and we started uncovering, like I said, 1991, they had hearings. And at the time, the FDA and everybody on the committee who took money from uh, the drug industry and the FDA said, nope, they voted no, there's no um, link to this. And the FDA told Eli Lilly, the makers of Prozac, to study suicidality. And they never did and never followed up. Hmm. Um, and so fast forward, it is now 2003. You know, that is well after, um, you know, at the time in 91, I was in, what, college or, you know, living. That mm-hmm. wasn't even part of our – I wouldn't have even known that this existed, right? So really when I f- we figured this out, my brother-in-law and I, it became our mission to go get black box suicide warnings added to antidepressants. And we took – I mean, we spent weeks and mm. weeks. And, and really I give a lot of credit to my brother-in-law because I couldn't even really function going to Target – and wondering for what sure. my life was going to be like. But he literally, I don't know if he slept for weeks um, reading. He ordered all these books from some of the leading experts today who were warning about it back then. Uh, you know, David Healy, uh, Peter Bragan. Mm-hmm. And these are some of the, the original people who had been psychiatrists that had been seeing issues with these drugs. So anyways, we eventually had binders worth and we went, started going to DC and meeting with our representatives and telling Woody's story and ultimately helped to um, push for and worked with the House Energy Commerce um, Committee who was looking into the um, the role of antidepressants and suicide with kids. Mm. And it was That's- a journey. That is quite the journey, and we're going to stay tuned to hear more about it. Thank you, Kim, for your brave work and your voice in this world. We'll be back with you, hearing more about the advocacy and what has shifted since then. 
Welcome back to Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth. And we're in studio today with Kim Witzick, the accidental advocate, who is here generously sharing her time with us to tell the story of Woody, her husband, who had committed suicide after being on antidepressants for five weeks uh, that was prescribed to him for a sleep uh, problem by his doctor. And she's here as an advocate, but also a brilliant um, advertiser, marketing communications, which plays a key factor into her advocacy work around um, the FDA and antidepressants, as well as larger work she does beyond the antidepressants, because she's really able to understand the studies and and what doctors are armed with. So, Kim, maybe you could um, uh, bring us, you know, further into, so you start going to meetings in Washington, D.C. with your brother-in-law after doing a bunch of research, and, and you look, you know, how to take action and advocacy around his wrongful death. Um, and you established a lawsuit, right? Mm-hmm. I did. So one of the first things we did with all that research and and really my background is I helped start other nonprofits. And so I just had this idea of like when you have a goal in mind, it, like I wasn't going to quit until we got those black box warnings on, right? And our advocacy, or I like to call it the battle for Woody, actually had many prongs. And mm. one of them was obviously, you know, getting out into D.C., meeting the the legislators, the you know the senators, the representatives who are on the committees, and also pushing for investigations, but also meeting with FDA officials and HHS and any of the public health organizations, the regulators who approve these drugs, right, mm-hmm. and are also the ones responsible for labels. So that was another aspect. And another one was – you know, having a wrongful death failure to warn lawsuit against Pfizer. And that I have since learned, you know, I was kind of blind to the idea of, you know, lawsuits, meaning, you know, first of all, I always thought lawsuits were a little frivolous, meaning, you know, you always learned about the the woman who burnt herself with McDonald's hot coffee in the middle of her leg. You're like, well, you're yeah, well, you're the idiot driving around with hot coffee between your leg. Well, I have subsequently... Although that would really hurt. <laughs> no, it do, but you know what? I subsequently learned sometimes the major lawsuits are actually needed for, to change behaviors and to change yes. um, patterns. And so what I learned about that lawsuit that I always held up because I think that was the narrative, right, right. about that, is that that lawsuit was instrumental in changing the temperature of coffee sold at McDonald's and other fast food restaurants. Wow. Um, so it was a very instrumental, pivotal lawsuit. So anyways, we did do some research and we found um, and interviewed law firms and found a law firm out in L.A., Bomb Headland, and they were the they were already working on litigation with antidepressants and suicide. So another like sign that you get actually connected with the right Lost, like, how did you find them? Yeah, it's so funny. Like I mentioned in the beginning where my brother-in-law didn't sleep. Right. Uh, he, one of the books was um, David Healy's Let Him Eat Prozac. And in oh. there, it, he was talking about, because he was an expert, he had been inside um, and seen the clinical studies 
from the drug companies Pfizer and and, and GlaxoSmithKline, etc. And he talked about his legal never really being a part of lawsuits as well or even to understand that system. But he talked about the law firm, Bomb Headland, who were surfers out in California, had no idea that they were the law firm in the entire world that was actually working on them. There was another one as well. But when we met them, I remember we flew out there because I, you know, actually wanted to see if I was going to partner with um, a law firm. And I say partner because I really saw it as a partnership, meaning, you know, if it it wasn't about money, I told him, this is not about money. It'll never, money will never bring Woody back or or any of the people Mm -hmm. back. Right. But I want to make change. I want to make sure that we get a black box warning on and anything that you can do, because these guys had already been working on it. They had all these documents that they had already spent. They were like waiting for you almost. Oh, yeah, they were. And I'll tell you why. When I remember when we talked to him, uh, my brother-in-law called and said, Woody kept talking about head outside the body. Well, they had a document that now we've got, it's now public. But at the time, it was the South African FDA regular, you know, their regulatory, Mm -hmm. like the Mm -hmm. FDA, writing to Pfizer's chief medical officer, saying that they have doctors who have patients on 50 milligrams where the patient was reporting feeling like they were outside their bodies looking in. So if doctors here in the U.S. or the U.K. or anywhere else had had that symptom, like the understanding of the symptomology, yes, that doctor, when Woody called, would have said, you know what, we need to reduce your Ex- dose. Exactly. So that was that, – that, when we told them that story, and I always am thankful, you know, it was a pretty – horrific thing to watch would he go through that but it was also the thing when they heard it they knew that they had a document they're like oh this might be the case they knew that woody didn't have a history right they couldn't blame it on anything so we went out and i loved the scrappiness of them i also love that they were all about wanting to get warnings on and yeah so we worked together with them and and that was a pretty big experience. I'm sure I was not your their typical client because yeah. I kept saying, you know, I would be as if, because if we're going to work together, you know, I got I to gotta get the documents. Right. So I was like, all right, what can we do? What can we do? Do you have things? And so, and realize that, um, that during this experience, they also had so much experience and helped educate me as well of some of the, the mechanisms, things that were happening, a history, like I don't know if you remember uh, the um, Saturday Night Live Phil Hartman, mm-hmm. comedian, and yep. he was murdered by his wife, and yep. then his wife took her life. Yeah, She had just started Zoloft. Mm. And what I didn't know, but these guys, the lawyers told me, is that after that, you know, the media, the way it was painted, it was yeah, she was, it was crazy, she drank with some alcohol, and then she had a problem. I mean, of course, it's what they've always done, and I think that's the When issue. they don't want people to actually get curious, conscious, and dive in and get free from a system that actually is yeah. really trying to keep people as profit margins. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, then it's so easy to blame the patient, right, or blame the victim. And so that I didn't realize that they had actually, the Hartman estate had a lawsuit against Pfizer 
and they settled it, and you never heard anything about it. Right. They settled it, secretly settled it. The kids moved to um, to Wisconsin with the you know the family of I think the Bryn or whatever her name was um, family. But there were all sorts of this happening. So I think the legal aspect is really important element of the battle for Woody because we were in the process and it was horrible going through the depositions. And let me tell you, they tried, they dug deep. Yeah, I'm there sure. Was, there wasn't, you know. To they, try to discredit Woody, to discredit you, oh, anything that they could do to like put this back under. Yeah, but you know, it was really interesting. Um, in my deposition, the first half of my deposition, they had me for nine hours under, you know, oath. They didn't ask me any questions about Woody. Hmm. They wanted That's to, curious. Yeah, exactly. And wrong. Curious and wrong. So they wanted to know who knew what where. They wanted to know who I've met in D.C. How did we get Senator Grassley involved? How huh. did you get the Minnesota Attorney General involved? How did you – like all they wanted to know was all of my advocacy kind of trail. They wanted to try to put it back in. Yes. They wanted to know – it was like I always say damage control, right? Yeah. OK. Who, where, like what What does the landscape look like that of the mess that Kim Witzak has you know, created out Thank in D.C.? Thank God you made a big mess. <laughs> And so finally, I remember looking at them. I, I remember I was really because I had just gotten back from Germany from yeah. a sh- uh, shoot, so I had like little sleep. I was really crabby, and that was the last place I want to be right. is a deposition. But I remember looking at the attorneys sitting across the um, the table from me, and I said, "Can I ask you a question?" And and I and she looked at me, Pfizer's attorney, and she said, "No, we're the ones asking the questions." Hmm. And I said, "Okay, um, since I'm under oath." I I understand since I'm under oath, I just don't understand what this line of questioning has to do with my husband being dead. You have not asked me one question about Woody yet. Please continue. I remember I was just like, um, I was kind of (laughs) throwing it as you should have. Yeah. And and I remember then, you know, when I said, please continue. Then eventually it turned to, you know, talking about Woody and then asking, you know, basically trying to get, did you have money problems? Did you have marital problems? Were you having an affair? Like, I mean, it was wow. so disgusting, the questions, because they knew they, that they had already done their, there wasn't anything. And right. I don't even know if they really thought this would ever go to the point of depositions, because what most people don't understand is during all this litigation, there was a – and it's something at the FDA called um, the chief counsel's office, um, the chief lawyer, right? It was a preemption brief, which was basically the, inter- the FDA intervening in all these private lawsuits um, saying even if Pfizer wanted to warn, we wouldn't let them because we are responsible for the label. Hmm. Well, that brief was the mastermind of – the chief counsel, Dan Troy, who before he was appointed into this office that didn't need congressional approval, he um, got $300,000 from Pfizer to before going into this role. Wow. And so that eventually- seems compromising. Very. I mean, this is when I started learning about, oh, conflicts of interest and yeah. you know, some pretty major or the rotating, rotating um, revolving door. So eventually we helped to um, expose him working with Representative uh, Hinchy out of New York. And he eventually, Dan Troy, the chief counsel for FDA, eventually left- the hmm. FDA and went to go and went back to private practice and ultimately became chief counsel, global chief counsel for GlaxoSmithKline. 
And so this wow. is why I don't think Pfizer ever thought they would get into the deposition because they were using this brief and getting all of the cases thrown out by judges who thought, well, who are we to question the FDA's authority who knows the science? So that was um, definitely an eye-opening experience of... But you ended up winning the lawsuit, right? Yeah, if you say winning, it was resolved. You know, it was resolved because I think when Pfizer tried um, tried using that brief in my case, and I'll never forget, it was at the federal courthouse, and I wish that there, you know, you could see the pictures. It was actually our chief justice um, in Minnesota federal court. James Rosenbaum took the case, hmm. which was, you know, showed that it was like at the high level of um, concern. And anyways, I, and I'll never forget, it was like a wedding. You know, there's two sides, you know, you got the plaintiff side and then you got the defense side as if it was the bridegroom and mm-hmm. this side, um, the plaintiff, meaning, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sitting up there with the lawyers, was Packed all the way back with friends, oh, family. Wow. That gives me. And just yeah. people who were there to support us. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side was just um, Pfizer and their attorneys hmm. and nobody behind them. So it was like, <laughs> it was like somebody was like, uh, no, we like, so I'm sure, you know, even if the judge is looking out going, do you have pictures? Uh, yeah, I, I don't, you know what? Because back then I was just doing the work. Right. I'm not right. a person, which is so funny that I didn't take pictures. But so I could almost see the judge looking out going, oh, this is funny. But Pfizer came to argue the FDA's preemption brief. And I'll never forget, he looked at him and he said, the FDA, because apparently we have a Minnesota version of the FDA here in office. And he said, if Pfizer, if the FDA wanted to come and argue this brief, they should be here themselves. We don't need you to be arguing their brief. And so he kind of shut it down. And when that that brief, basically, they – because they were hoping that that brief, the judge would side with them and get things thrown out. He did not. And he, you know, lo- allowed the lawsuit to go forward. Pfizer tried it one more time because they're bold. And he <laughs> literally wrote, it's the best. It is so denied, period. Like there was nothing else. Like you just pissed him off. He already told you once through, right. his re- you know, his ruling. And now they try again. But after that, I think that is really the start of when um, these lawsuits and Woody being a pivotal one that helped to start settle all of them. Um, for the ones that didn't get thrown out. And the biggest thing I think about that experience was that we were my lawyers, because they go back to when I said, I don't want, this is not about money. This is about getting the documentaries or the documents out from under seal that we can use. Because when you see in black and white what they knew on their letterhead and Woody's dead and all countless of people are, you know, lives have been altered. This is what matters, is these documents. Yeah. And Pfizer's had to surrender a lot of documents in the last few years. Sure have. <laughs> All right. Well, we're in studio with Kim Witzick. And uh, Kim, where can they find your nonprofit um, advocacy work? Sure. They can um, follow my work at kimwitzak.com, W-I-T-C-Z-A-K, or follow me on Twitter at, uh, at Woody Matters. Woody Matters. Woody Does Matter along with so many more. Thanks.
back at Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth, and we have Kim Witzick in studio, who is an accidental advocate and also a genius in advertising, marketing, and communications. She has a portfolio career where she works with many different constituents, um, bringing her talents to them. And she is... um, Pro-transparency, pro-information, not anti-drug, although her story about her husband, Woody, who um, had side effects of being on an antidepressant, which led to suicide, you know, it's it's brave of you not to, to go there. Um, but is responsible, Woody's death and the advocacy work Kim has done is responsible for putting black box warnings on drugs. And Kim, just so to make sure all our listeners understand, what is a black box warning? And um, maybe you could bring that forward for a minute. Sure. A uh, black box warning is the most serious of all warnings that the FDA can put on a or give a drug. And it means that there is either serious harms or deaths caused by it. And it also impacts the way advertising can be done on our um, on products. And if you were to get your and actually look at your you know paperwork that comes in your prescriptions, I actually do that whenever. I mean, I don't take a lot of drugs, but I do look at things that come in packages. Well, you know what? All sorts of packages. <laughs> I've learned that all the information is usually in the tiny type. Yeah. And it is there because it's something you should pay attention to. But, you know, I think most people feel like they're going to throw it away. But it's also been their, the meaning the, the company's protection because they'll be like, oh, it's in the label. But a black box But warning, even think about that just for a hot second. Um, tiny type and – the population that is on most drugs, their vision, you know, because a lot of times our older population seems to have more use of drugs. And so if their vision isn't astute, they're missing that information. Right, right. And but more importantly, I'm going to say yeah, that go ahead, going sorry. back to the black box warning at yeah. the top, it's in a black, it's literally circled around or in a black box, um, outlined in a black box. But even if the person isn't reading it, somebody, it shouldn't be left to the person or the patient or the elderly or the caregiver or the mother to read it. I mean, yes, I think everybody should be informed, but the conversation should have started a lot earlier than by the time it got to the paperwork at the um, pharmacist. Right. Absolutely. And something, you know, your other, you know, the job that you have had well before this advocacy work entered and and brought you into this kind of sovereign path that you've been on to create awareness and freedom so people are have pro-information about, like, risk-benefit analysis, right, um, is advertising. And one thing that I find interesting that you've mentioned uh, to me when in our conversations is how much... Um, some of the documentation that doctors actually receive are more PR releases, right? Yep. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, and why that? You know, because I think you're so uh, your expertise is so well suited for what you are doing here. Well, it's funny. What do you so? Because I always said I don't know. 
if I want to stay in advertising, and I remember Woody always saying, Kim, you could be doing so much more with it, just advertising. And it's funny how <laughs> I'm like, really, this is what you meant? Like you had to take your life for me to do this? Come on. Uh, no. Um, but I think, well, first of all, we should go back to the, um, the fact that the U.S. is one of only two countries in the world that allow drug ads to the consumer. Mm-hmm. So that is just the consumer-facing advertising that you and I and everybody, you know, sees on, on television. Mm-hmm. You can't go through news and, you know, they're very sophisticated marketers. But what we don't see is all the advertising or the marketing, the spins behind the scenes that are going to doctors. And that includes things like our journal articles that are written that the doctors read and trust, right? Mm-hmm. That, But they can be ghostwritten. And ghostwriting is basically where the company, and I learned this through the documents that we got out from under seal during the litigation, that they had a whole, Pfizer had an entire publication plan where they knew exactly when the articles were going to be running in these, you know, prestigious journals, hmm. who, um, like, what the topic is, the date, and then they had, like, a, a, um, a chart that said the the name of the authors. And there were a few that said TBD, TBD, TBD. And I, wow, and I was like, sophisticated. Who's, yeah, I'm like, who's TBD? Mm-hmm. You know, who's Dr. TBD? Well, these are the ones that they will eventually pay to put their name on it. Hmm. So it looks like it's coming from a, you know, well-respected doctor. And there's also an entire, so that's one thing, ghostwriting. And so once you learn that, you have to almost now, like, do your research, even as a person of the public, right? Because, you know, our doctors, which I was surprised, don't learn how the FDA works. So they don't even, so if they don't even understand the how the FDA process works in med school, and they're certainly not going to learn these other aspects like ghostwriting or key opinion leaders. And a key opinion leader is there are companies that pharma works with that identify who are the top doctors in a specific field. And it might be, and they will work with them and hire them to do speaking. And it may not even, they may never even hmm. mention the drug, but they're on the speaking circuit talking about how bad childhood ADHD is or something like that or hmm. bipolar depression, which is one that was really worked through with um, with key, the use of key opinion leaders. So even if they don't say anything about the drug, they're slowly selling the disease, right? right? And then, boom, here comes the company. So these are ways that I always call this, you know, I've now come to call this the, the spider web of all the influences um, behind the scene of you and I take, you know, you and I, the patient, getting a pill from the doctor. And, you know, and then there's also all of the just general the salespeople, you know, that are in the office. And, and you know, most of our medications come from GPs, the in, you know, the general practitioners, our family doctors, our, you know, the, the pediatricians. And they ha- there's so much information. And if you understand who's controlling the information and where's the information coming from, um, it's, and if it's coming from the industry, it's going to be slanted. Our system is slanted for, to promote benefits and over-promote, oversell benefits, downplay harms, and also just this concept of 
I always say, remember, drug companies are marketers. They are right. businesses, and they are in the business, and they're beholden to their shareholder. They're not beholden to the doctors. They're not beholden to the patients. Their their legal aspect is um, a requirement is to the shareholders. And so if you're a business, what a better business to have products that go from cradle to grave. Right. And using it all the time, like, you know, we were talking about the uh, the small type, yeah. tiny type. Well, you know, I was involved in cre- the creation of lease ads for cars, you know, when it, the lease programs yeah. first came out. And I learned really quickly that it's all about the tiny type and you must go look at the disclaimer copy because that is where the real truth lives, right? And so I remember always like, you know, my my client was BMW. So it'd be like, you can get a BMW 7 Series for, you know, $3.99 a month. And then you go, oh, wait. Then you go down below and you're seeing, okay, it's only for 8,000 miles a year and you got to put $15,000 down. Right. So, you know, I've been trained to look at those, um, the small type. Well, so that was um, something that when I discovered, uh, and I'm sure if you go to the doctor and most of your listeners, when they go to the doctor, it's because it's a form that's part of your, you know, when you check in and it's a depression or a mental health screening where it says in the last two weeks, have you felt sad? Have you felt less than worthy? Have you ate too much? Have you... um, have you thought you know drank too much? I mean, it's just these series right. of questions. Lifestyle, in the lab. Life, lifestyle questions, lifestyle questions, but geared toward should we flag you for anything yes. that we can prescribe you? Yes, and that. So what people don't know on that, but my eyes are trained to go look at the tiny type. On the very bottom, it says a generous donation by Pfizer Inc. Mm. and um, three different doctors' names. Well, those doctors are what I just told you about key opinion leaders because they've also received big monies from the makers of antidepressants and it's created by Pfizer. That document came out of a Zoloft marketing from the 90s. It was an idea. How do we get more more prescriptions out of general practitioners' offices versus the psychiatrists? Because, you know, the psychiatrist is a smaller specialty. Right. But, you know, there's a lot more. You can capture a lot more people in the business of marketing. So anyways, I this is all going on behind the scenes. It's why I, again, call it the spider web. And the doctors have no idea. Yeah, they, I mean, and so much, you know, what like breaks my heart is so much of some of this can be addressed by how we're living, like our routines. And, and you know, and, and it's what is lacking is like sometimes we're going to have a hard time right and it's not necessarily that we need to medicate it it's that we it's actually oftentimes an invitation for people to slow down get a little bit of perspective go internal get some good support um and reevaluate whatever it is that is you know that's bump in the road. I mean, there are times where we need wider support because it's a more intense time. And, Absolutely. And so, yeah. I, I agree. You know, I look back and, and I still, for who Woody was, and he was super healthy. He didn't, he could have one drink, two made him drunk. He didn't, he really didn't, he was a super healthy guy. And for him to quickly take an antidepressant 
when nowadays I would be like, you know, that should be the last thing. But unfortunately, we are watching, you know, over these last couple of years of the pandemic, antidepressant um, use is skyrocketing mm-hmm. um, with kids mm-hmm. um, as well as like adults. And they're using it not just for, you know, life, um, mm-hmm. but pain management. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we are quick, and I think this and is where there's a lot of grief from the last few years that yeah. kids have lost out on. I mean, I'm Absolutely. a mom. I have kids. There's a lot of grief that our collective young kids need to process. Absolutely. But it doesn't necessarily need to be medicated. No. And, and going back to what you said at the beginning of our this section, I'm not anti-drug. Right. But I am. I'm not either. I'm, but here's what I am. Mm-hmm. Like, I think these are the things where we need to pause, stop, pause, ask questions, and really wonder, like, I have learned through my own journey that, first of all, we have been t- sold a lie if we think that life is not supposed to have suffering because right. suffering is part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. And that includes the mental health. And I like to actually reframe it to mental well-being because there's a lot of things. Aligned with that. I agree. (laughs) So I just think like mental well-being talks about all this, covers it. But anyways, I just think there's a lot of things that we could do and and must do better than just throwing a pill at – and granted, we've become this society that – it's we. I mean, who doesn't want quick fixes? Oh, you know? totally. I don't want to I change mean, like how I eat to lose weight. I'm always up for exercise. a miracle, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. So, like a pill, if that's going to take it away. But what we have to go back and look at is sometimes when things aren't going right, or you're feeling down, or you have anxiety, or if you have something, it also is an opportunity for us to take a pause and look at what else is going on in your life. What's going on that needs to be looked at versus just here's a pill, take it away. Uh, you know, I remember after Woody died, my doctor said, do you want, um, do you need a pill? Uh, and I looked at her. I'm like, well, I, first of all, I think, you know, this is what killed my husband. Right. Which I think she was like thinking I was a little crazy when I said that. But more importantly, I go, but more importantly, shouldn't, I mean, my husband died. Shouldn't I hurt? Mm-hmm. And then she said, but you don't need to. And I thought, Wow. If that is the way that we have come to, like, you don't need to, yeah, the only way for me to get on the other side, and and I now call it post-traumatic growth, the sixth stage of grief, is you have to go through, and that means going through dark times, and that means being supported by people, and and maybe there are other things. And sure, there might be a time when a pill is helpful, but certainly not like a daily vitamin with serious harms that they have attached to it. Absolutely not. And, and yeah, tell the listeners one more time, you, you do work for the FDA, like advocacy. Yeah. I, yep. So I, so give us, let let people know kind of your portfolio work, your advocacy work and where else they can find you. Sure. Um, like I said, I like to call myself, um, as I have a portfolio career because I do a little of this, a little of that. So I still do advertising and marketing. I don't ever want to get rid of that because it's my passion. It's what I did before. But it also gives me an insight into what's going on in the business side of my advocacy in the pharmaceutical companies. And I also sit on the FDA Psychopharmalogic Drugs Committee as a consumer rep, making sure that our voices are made public. Awesome. And they can find you at kimwitzak.com, W-I-T-C-Z-A-K, or at Woody Matters on the Twitter. 
Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us today, Kim, and all your advocacy work and everyone listening. May everybody find their pathways that set themselves free and continue to join us for more heart-centered thought leaders.